Well, good morning. How are we doing? Good. Hey, it's good to be with you. Uh, glad I get to, to worship with you. Glad I get to preach from the Word of God this morning. So uh, let's go for it. Let's jump in. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in Titus 2, chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. Is Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. And just a fair warning, uh, we had a saint, a brother in Christ, first hour, who, uh, man, it, it was like me and him, we were like doing this dance, you know what I mean? Like he was, like we were back and forth, he was, he was gassing me up, it was, it was great, it was encouraging, it was exciting, and then second hour, the spirit was moving, and so people were, were, they were feeling themselves a little bit, and they were, they were talking back with me, and so I'm just saying, if you feel so inclined uh, to interact, just know, as a communicator, I actually like that, don't be afraid, if you feel the spirit maybe prompting you to just say amen, you can keep it in your head, you can whisper it, you can say it, that's that's fine. However you choose to respond, that's great. Uh, but just know it's, it's encouraging for me as a communicator, especially as we get to just talking about the beauty of the gospel and the grace of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to be in Titus 2, 11 through 15. We are continuing our journey through the book of Titus in this series entitled Sound Doctrine, Sound Living. And as a quick reminder of where we've been so far, the Apostle Paul is writing to Titus who's been called to pastor a church on the island of Crete. And Cretans, as we learned in the first week, are a people infatuated with pleasure and play. They are truly a hedonistic bunch of people if there ever was one. And if there's a single phrase that that could really capture or summarize the whole of Paul's letter to Titus, it would be the phrase, incarnational theology. Right? Incarnational theology. This is theology lived, believed, embodied, and enacted. It's, it's the idea that orthodoxy, which is right belief, and orthopraxy, which is right practice, are intrinsically bound to one another. So for the, the Christian or for the church, it's, it's good and it's necessary for us to affirm what's biblically right and true. I mean, I, I would hope that we could get the answers right on a test. That's good and that's right and we want that, but belief that is not embodied or when it is not embodied, there is a disastrous disconnect. Which leads me to my first point, and I'm going to go, I'm going to come back to this phrase all throughout our time together this morning. The first point is that you are what you believe. You are what you believe. Now, this might sound overly simplistic. This might sound a bit reductionistic. It's not. I'm going to unpack this for us a little bit, but let's start here. You are what you believe. Or in other words, what you believe matters because your belief has a way of getting into your bones, Right? It has a way of shaping you, what you believe, it guides you, it, it, it has a way of showing up in every part of your life. And so when we're talking about doctrine, like doctrine matters because it shapes our imagination. Right? Doctrine matters because it shapes our affections. Doctrine matters because it shapes our view of reality. Doctrine matters because it shapes what we do and how we live. It is the why behind the what. And now, this is, this is about some, not all, but, 
but some of us can get a little squirmy when we begin to talk about doctrine and theology, right? And I think it's because we've been trained to almost think that theology is, is this thing, it's like for the pastors, it's for professors, it's for people who write theology books, those thick commentaries, it is this ethereal kind of thing, right? It has no legs, it's not practical. I want practical stuff. And let me just tell you, that could not be further from the truth. Theology is intensely practical. Now, when it's done poorly, it becomes this ethereal thing that it's, you know, we're learning for the sake of learning. It's knowledge for the sake of knowledge that just kind of puffs us up. But when theology is done well, again, it gets into our bones and it shapes our minds, it shapes our hearts, and it, and it moves us to action with our hands. Because doctrine is essentially beholding God's character and work as he has revealed it in his word and then by it being shaped into the image of Jesus. Or as Dr. Marcus Johnson from uh, Moody Bible Institute says, he says that theology is the deliberate and considered response by the people of God to the revelation of God in Christ where we offer joyful and worshipful expression to the truth and the reality found in him. Now understand this. Brothers and sisters, every single one of us in here is a theologian. You may not think it, you may not even believe it as I say it, but you are. All of us are theologians because all of us have thoughts about God. Every single one of us. And understand this, whether they are good and right thoughts or bad and wrong thoughts, every one of us has them and we are all shaped and influenced by them. And so sound doctrine should lead to sound living. It is both orthodoxy and orthopraxy. What you believe matters because you are what you believe. And here's a fun fact for you. This is actually why my job exists at this church. Like when I stepped out of student ministry, I've had a, a handful of people, mostly teenagers, say to me, so what do you do now? Like, what is, like what is, what's even your job? Like, are you still a pastor here or do you just like us? And while it's true, I like you guys, uh, I am also still a pastor here at this church. And my job as the spiritual formation pastor is to think really hard about how we as a church can grow in our knowledge of who God is and what he's done as he's revealed it in his word so that we can understand who we are, so that we can understand what's real and what's good and what's true, all based on the word of God and not so that we can climb the ladder of intellectual ascent, but so that by filling our minds with the truth of God's word, our hearts and our hands would follow suit. That's what my job is. So with that, the truth of God's word my desire is that it would get into our bones, that it would transform us collectively and individually with the help of the Holy Spirit. And so let's jump into our text this morning. This is Titus 2, 11 through 15. Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age 
waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So here's the big idea of our passage this morning. It's the grace of God that saves us, trains us, and empowers us to do good work as we wait for Christ's return. The grace of God saves us, trains us, and empowers us to do good work as we wait for Christ's return. Let's look at verse 11. This is Paul's first move into the section. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So Paul's first move in this section, this is essential to the rest of his claim. This is, this is essential to understand because it's essential to the Christian faith, right? This single verse articulates an essential doctrine of the Christian faith, and it's that grace appeared and brought salvation for all people, right? So, so follow me here. You and I, all of us, we are living a story, we're living a story. And when I say story, what I mean is that we all have a way of seeing the world, understanding reality, and a way of answering these questions. What is really real? Like what's real? What's, what's reality? Two, when and where did life start? Like where did this come from? What is the origin of, of this? What's the purpose or the meaning of life? Like why am I here? Why are you here? Why are we here? Where is all of this heading? Like, what is history moving towards? And what is the good life? Like, how how should I live? How how should I live in order to experience joy? How how should I live uh, in order to experience flourishing? Like, individually, collectively, within my family, within my community? Like, what is the good life? Like, all of these are worldview questions. And, and know that the way that we answer these questions actually shapes the story that we live. It forms the narrative that we live, and we all live according to that story. You do, I do, the Cretans did. And essential to the Christian story is the idea of grace. But not, not just like any type of grace. This is unmerited grace. This is grace that cannot be earned. This is grace that is freely given to an undeserving people, a rebellious people, an idolatrous people. Grace lavished upon people by God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So, so what is it that sets the Christian story apart from every other story? It's grace. It's grace. It's the only story that has it. God the Father, who is full of grace, as Peter says in 1 Peter 5, he sent the Son to take on flesh, to walk among his created, to to be like humanity in every imaginable way except for one. He had no sin. We do, right? And we do. And in fact, it's our default setting. Our our default, like we come out of our mama's wombs as sinners. It's intrinsic to who we are. 
our nature, right? Our default nature is that we've been plagued with sin. And so sin is in everything we do. It's in everything we say. It's in everything we think. It's even our purest thoughts are stained by sin. And so consequently, we lust, we gossip, we pursue pleasure and power at the expense of others and and at the expense of ourselves too, even though we don't see it. We are by default prideful people, lovers of money and lovers of self. I mean, the list could go on and on and on, but the most devastating is that our default setting when we come out of the womb is that our hearts are set against God. We are rebels and we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And of course, this isn't new. This is old. It's very old. It's as old as Genesis 3. It's as old as the serpent showing up unexpectedly in the garden. But, but what's changed over time, especially in this cultural moment, is it just seems like there's no reason to hide it anymore. It's been masked for a long time, but it just feels like why hide what we already think? Why hide what we already believe, right? Like the story of our day is that salvation is found in self. That flourishing is found in self-actualization. I mean, you need to follow your heart and it will lead you to the good life. But here's the problem. It won't because it can't. So follow your heart. It will lead you straight to hell. And you might have fun along the way, but even that fun will lack substance. It's a shadow, not the real thing. And yet, grace appeared. The word appeared here used by Paul, it comes from the word epiphaneo, which means epiphany, right? And so um, something that was once concealed or hidden or invisible, now it's seen, right? It's coming into sight. And so like in classical Greek, this word was used to describe the break of dawn. So I don't know how many of you, like maybe you're the type of person you like to make your cup of coffee, uh, grab a blanket, go out on your front porch, or if you're at the beach, you go to the beach and you enjoy the sunset. So you get up at like 3 a.m. just to wait eagerly for that moment. Anybody here? Okay, my people. No. Uh, great. Yeah, not me either. Not that guy. But some people are, and praise God for that, right? But, but if you ever happen to be that person for like a day, and you get to experience this, this moment, this breathtaking moment where the sun begins to come up and and the light of day bursts, I mean, pierces through the darkness of night. Like like when the, the morning sun begins to break through the boundaries that have been set by the horizon, I mean, that is an incredible sight and that's what this word, this epiphania, epiphany, that's the image that it has, light bursting into the darkness, breaking past the horizon. And nine of the ten times this word is used in the New Testament, it's used to describe either the first or the second coming of Jesus Christ. And we've got two of them in our passage. So what Paul is saying here is that grace became tangible. It became visible. It it became widely accessible in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Like John Stott, he says it this way. He says that it talking about grace, was brightly displayed in his, Jesus's, lowly birth, in his gracious words and compassionate deeds, and above all, in his atoning death, he himself was full of grace. 
And this past week, as we as a, a staff and as pastors were just reading through this passage and kind of reflecting on it, um, Bobby gave this insight. He, he said this, and he probably hates that I'm quoting him today, and I love that I'm doing it because it makes him squirm. Um, but, but he said this, and I, man, I thought, that's it. He said, in reading this, he said, I just I thought, man, grace has a face, and it's the face of Jesus Christ. And the greatest news the world has ever received is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, sinless and perfect, grace incarnate, he has made salvation for all a reality through his life, his death, his resurrection and ascension. And and this grace which is made available in Christ is the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation to God. And, And this grace, it's a gift. It's unmerited, it's unearned, it's freely given to all who come to Jesus in faith and repentance. And so, brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ and you've received this grace, rejoice. You didn't earn it, you don't deserve it, but God gave it to you in his son. What a gift. And if you don't have it this morning and you think, maybe I want some of that, receive it today. Repent and believe in the name of Jesus. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he died and came back for you. Yes, even you. But y'all, the train keeps going. The good news keeps coming. It doesn't stop this morning. Let's look at verse 13. Skip 12. We'll come back. Let's jump to verse 13. Paul goes on, he says this, then waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so here, Paul lays before us yet another appearance or epiphany of grace, right? Only this one is a future appearing, right? He says that we long for the second appearance. We hope for it. We pray eagerly for it. I mean, this is our blessed hope that Jesus Christ himself will return, that grace incarnate will come again, that all who are in Christ by faith will will see him and will be with him for endless days. And on this day, the glory of God will be revealed in full as Jesus Christ, our God and Savior, returns to recreate the cosmos and to establish, to to consummate his kingdom. Now notice how Paul is creating this sort of bookend of grace, right? He, he's, you know, it's grace in the past, it's grace in the future, it's grace, it's grace, right? Grace appeared, past tense, bringing salvation for all, and grace will appear again, future tense. It's grace behind us, it's grace before us, it's grace that saved us in the past, it's grace that saves and sustains and seals us in the present, it's grace that saves us in the future, it's unmerited, it's unearned, it's all grace. I mean, the gospel is the gospel of grace. And this is fundamental to the Christian story. So if you are in Christ, this is your story. Your life is just covered every single moment by God's grace in Jesus Christ. I think Paul does this to, to, to kind of like to reorient us. Like he sets these bookends, it's grace, it's grace, it's grace. And I need you to hold on to that as we jump into the next part because this next part is actually the main thrust of Paul's message in these like five verses. So again, it's grace, it's grace, it's grace. Grab it, hold on to it, love it, keep it at the front of your mind. Look at me with verse 12, or at verse 12. 
So he's just, again, he's talked about grace coming, appearing, offering salvation for all. And then he says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And so the primary thrust here of of this passage, like Paul's main point is that God has lavished his grace upon all who are in Christ for what purpose? Well, so that they would be a people who are zealous to do good works. Like I was reminded this week in, in Mark chapter 10, there's a story of the rich young man. He comes to Jesus and he asks him a question and in the question he calls Jesus good. Right, And so Jesus, as he does, he responds with another question, right? And he asks, so why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And as I was thinking about that, as I was thinking about this, it's just like that word good. I was like, oh man, like my, my gears were going. I was in so many rabbit holes. And, and, and so I'm just thinking, what, like how do these things go together? And so the word good is just meant to describe something that is beautiful, Right, something that is virtuous and pure and untarnished. It is, it's honorable. And, and so I'm thinking, okay, Jesus says here that no one is good but God alone. And, and then here we have Paul saying, yeah, but God has redeemed a people. He has purified a people for himself who would be zealous to do good works, meaning to do works that reflect the very heart and character of God. And so left to ourselves, our our works, they aren't good. They might be nice, but even our nice deeds, our our good deeds still have just a stain. They aren't entirely pure. And yet here's where grace comes in, right? Because grace then empowers us. Grace enables us to do good works, these beautiful, virtuous, pure, untarnished, honorable works. And we get to do them joyfully. Like these are works that, that, that reflect the image of Jesus, that, that are permeated by the presence of grace. And they come from a pure heart and a pure conscience, not because to myself I'm pure, but because God has made me pure in Christ. As Bobby said last week, the Christian life is it's more than just moral behavior, certainly, but it's not less. And I go back to my opening statement. You are what you believe. So if you believe the gospel and and grace is your reality, this is what happens when it gets into your bones. Like when grace gets into your bones, it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So so if godliness is, is living a life that's pleasing to God, then ungodliness is living a life that displeases God, right? It's, it's saying yes to what he says no to and saying no to what he says yes to. It's a life that is lived with no regard for his holiness or his beauty, his authority, his righteousness, his justice. It's, it's a life with me at the center where I am just chasing pleasure after pleasure after pleasure, again, ignoring the substance and settling for the shadow. And, and let me say this, this is a reality that we don't, I don't even think we think about it often enough, if at all. 
you and I are constantly being formed. We are constantly being discipled. We are constantly being shaped into the image of something or someone. It's happening now. It's going to happen when you leave. And even now, there are these competing forces that are, are trying to deform us and reform us. And one of those forces is the world. Like the, the world is a formation machine. It is, and here's, here's what it's doing. Here's the message. This is, this is the story that they're trying, that we are being formed into by the world. It's simple. It's that flourishing is found when you do what you want, when you be who you want, when you live as you want. Right, the, the story then is that satisfaction is found when you stop repressing the deepest impulses, the ones that are like in your gut and you just finally kind of give yourself over to them. Right? Any form of self-denial in this story is anathema. It's heresy. And this Again, this, this isn't hidden, it's everywhere, right? It's in the shows we watch, it's in the movies we watch, the music we listen to, the podcasts, the books, the restaurants you eat at, the stores you shop, it's everywhere, this story, this message. And it makes sense in a cultural moment where we are moving further and further into secular waters. And so this story then too has no real place or category for a benevolent, holy, personal God. I mean, if he exists at all. He is either a tyrant who should be ignored or he's a squishy granddaddy God whose only job is to love me as I am and give me what I want. And grandparents, you're like, that is my job, right? I love my grandkids, give them what they want and I send them off when they're bad, right? But that is not who God is. In either of these options, he submits to me and this, of course, is not the story of the Bible. The Christian story says that there's a God who created everything, including us, that as creator, he knows what's best for us. And believe it or not, he designed us and the world to function in a, in a specific way that leads to flourishing and leads to joy. And yes, he actually has a standard of right and wrong and it's objective, not subjective. And when grace permeates our lives and when we believe with our hearts and our minds and the sacrificial atoning work of Jesus, his, his life and his death on the cross, his resurrection, when we begin to live the Christian story, the only appropriate response is surrender and obedience to Jesus. That's it. The only appropriate response is the one laid out by Paul, denounce ungodliness and worldly passions. I'm done with that. And instead, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Again, I want to go back to it. Saved by grace. Saved by grace. Saved by grace. It's grace in the past. It's grace in the present. It's grace in the future. But for what purpose? To be a people who have been purified by God and for God so that we might be zealous and eager and excited to do good works. Now, if you can imagine in your mind's eye with me for just a moment, imagine a spectrum, right? And, and so you've got on, on two ends of the spectrum, you've got grace over here and you've got law over here. And so let's go to the farthest extreme on the grace side, right? If you were to run to the farthest extreme, you have what's often called easy believism, which is essentially the idea that because I'm saved by grace through faith alone in Jesus, God does not care what I do. It doesn't matter. 
There's no place, there's no, there's no category for holiness. God doesn't, he's not concerned with that because it's all grace. It's an abuse of grace. But there's, there's no sense of righteous living. There's no sense of holiness. There's no desire. I mean, it's just, it's not there. And so that's the farthest extreme on this grace side of the spectrum. It's easy believers. And while on the other side, you've got law. And the farthest extreme on that end is legalism, which is the belief that, yes, grace, it's a reality, but ultimately it's, it's earned. Like God's got something good for me, and to get it, I've got to be good. I've got to prove myself to be worthy. You have to prove yourself to be worthy. And when we fall short, we risk everything. It's all in jeopardy. But what Paul and the rest of the New Testament authors are advocating for is unmerited grace that saves, sustains, and transforms. Like this is, this is grace that saves you and grace that changes you. This is grace that frees you up to joyfully obey, grace that motivates you towards obedience. It's, it's a type of living that comes as a response to grace. Like the psalmist, the psalmist says it like this. He says, I will run in the path of your commands because you have set my heart free. It's that type of grace. Now, some of us will fall further on the grace side of things. And, and if that's you, let me just say, like, we just, we need to take God's call to holiness and obedience a little bit more seriously. Right? We, we rob ourselves of joy when we abuse God's grace and reject his call to obedience. Now, others of us need to lean into grace a little bit more. Some of us are on that legalism, that law side of things. And so we, we need to understand that while we might be disciplined and rigid, because we lean so far on this side, it's like when we fail, we question everything and the weight of it cripples us. And we just need to be reminded that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. So brothers and sisters, take a breath. Past, present, and future, it's all grace. Believe that and receive that. Like this is a type of living that is otherworldly. It's others focused and above all, it is Christocentric. Jesus is at the center of this type of living. It is grace filled. It's grace driven. It's spirit empowered obedience. Now I want you to look with me for a second. Paul gives a clear answer for, for why this matters so much. So in verse 11, he starts this whole section with the word for, right? So he's connecting it back to the 10 verses that came before, verse 11, right? So last week, it's older men and, and older women and younger men and younger women and bond servants. I mean, he lays out this sort of Christian ethic for these folks in the church. So you get to this section, and this is the why. This is the theology. This is laying the foundation. But connecting to verse 10, he says, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So then our works have the power to affirm or diminish the beauty of the gospel and the power of God's grace in Christ to a watching world. Now, if you think for a second that the world isn't watching you, you're wrong. The church is not the moral majority. We have not been for a long time. So, So there is a world looking in right now with critical eyes and skeptical hearts. And you are what you believe. So is your life a billboard for the beauty of Jesus and the power of the gospel and the transformative work of grace? 
Like has grace gotten into your bones? Does, does grace move you towards obedience? Do you look like the world around you or, or can they see the beauty and the majesty of Jesus through your life? It is our works and our actions that give affirmation to our belief that tell a better story. So do your works tell a better story? Does your life, does it tell a better story? Because the grace of God saves us, trains us, and empowers us to do good work as we wait for Christ's return. So if I may, I've got just a few more minutes. I'm going to give you some application. I'll make it quick. I'm going to give you three kind of categories, um, really some questions for reflection for you. So we're going to talk briefly about the head, the heart, and the hands. And some questions for each. And so the first one is the head. So when you think about the head, the mind, the question I want you to consider is what am I filling my mind with? And how does this shape what I believe? So do we see that what we listen to, that what we watch, that what we read, all of it has a way of shaping our thought life. All of it has a way of shaping our imagination and all of it has a way of shaping what we believe. Hear me say this, I really, really like music. All different flavors, all different genres. It's a total toss-up. It's just how I'm feeling that day. Really like music. I really like books. I like audiobooks, kind of. I tend to zone out. I, I really like podcasts. And again, all different flavors. I love theological podcasts. I love political podcasts. I love podcasts about dadding. There's literally a podcast called Dadville, and it's insane. You should listen to it if you're a dad. Um, I love TV. I, I mean, I love quoting The Office with Office Nerds. Like, I'm all about that stuff. But if I'm only filling my mind with these things and I'm never filling my mind with the word of God or some form, some content that's gonna stir my affections for Jesus, then I will be shaped by those things. I will be formed by those things. My beliefs will be impacted by those things. I will then feel more comfortable talking about politics than I do about the word because all I fill my mind with is politics. Right? I, I will be shaped more by what I see and hear on Instagram or TikTok or Facebook because I spend all my time eating that stuff up rather than abiding in God's true and living word. Inevitably, inevitably, what I put right here is going to have an impact on what happens here and what comes out of these. So what do you fill your mind with? How does it shape what you believe is true and right and good? The next is the heart. And the question is this, what are my deepest desires, affections, and longings? Or to put it differently, what do I love and what do I want? Right, your heart is a compass of sorts. It points you towards the things that you love and the things that you want. And that's not always a bad thing. It's not always a bad thing. But the question is, what is it pointing you towards? Where is it leading you? I'm not saying listen to your heart, follow your heart. I'm saying observe it. Ask the question, what is it pointing you towards? Because it's telling you something about you. And then finally, the hands. What am I doing? This one seems to be the most straightforward. Observe your actions. What do my actions reveal about my belief? What do my actions reveal about my loves? Day-to-day -day rhythms and habits and patterns that I continue to walk in. Why do I walk in those? Why do I keep doing those things? Now, let me say this before I, before I end this, okay? Um, this is going to be frustrating. 
Two of these things you have control over and one of these things you don't. You have control over what you fill your head with. You have control over what you do with your hands. You can't change your heart. That is a work of the Holy Spirit. And so here is my encouragement to you. Fill your mind with the truth of God's word so that you will know what is good and true and right. Pray that the Lord will soften your heart by his mercy, that your heart will follow suit as your desires and affections change, and then do what's right regardless of how you feel about it. And so you walk in obedience even when you don't want to. You extend forgiveness and grace even when you don't want to. You tell the truth and walk in integrity even when you don't want to. You hold your tongue or stay your hand from saying or typing that thing on Facebook even when you don't want to. You give generously even when you don't want to. You move towards those unlike you, dare I say, your enemies, even when you don't want to. Because what you believe, or you are what you believe, and the world is watching. So it's God's grace that saves us, trains us, and empowers us to do good works. Works that give affirmation to our belief in God's grace. Works that reflect the person and work of Jesus Christ. Works that tell a better story. Church, may the world hear the gospel come out of our mouths and see the gospel in our lives. And may they be drawn to the gospel through us and through you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this morning. We thank you for your grace, the provision, the mercy to be here, to worship as your people, to hear from your word. God, I, I do pray that uh, you would help us to be a people whose, whose minds are being renewed uh, by your word and by your spirit. God, we ask that, uh, that you would do a work in our hearts that is, is, we can't do it. We can't do it, but we ask that our affections, our desires, God, that you would, would work supernatural, supernaturally, miraculously to to change our affections and desires to reflect your heart, to reflect what you desire, to, to reflect what you love. And then with our hands, God, we just, we ask that you would, would help us to be a, a people who obey, who walk in obedience, who experience the blessing of obedience, who are a blessing through our obedience, God. Help us to be a church that, that, uh, that believes the gospel, that believes in the power of grace and to be a people who, uh, who embody the better story, the truer story. May our lives and our actions tell that better story. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.